Well, folks, tonight we are in chapter 22. So let's go there. The very last book of the Bible. You know, earlier this year, we began this in-depth study of the book of Revelation. And lo and behold, here we are tonight, finding ourselves in the very last chapter. This is not the last sermon message on the book of Revelation, but it might be the second last. We'll see how the remainder of the the chapter goes, but tonight we'll be looking at the first five verses and uh, we're going to be learning further details about the new Jerusalem. A couple of Wednesdays ago was our last message uh, and we were learning about the new Jerusalem and this marvelous city. It's kind of beyond our ability to comprehend and the dimensions of it, like 1,500 miles one way, 1,500 miles another way, and 1,500 miles high, and it's going to come down from heaven. Wow, we ain't seen anything like that. Well, tonight, we're going to learn a little bit more about it. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to begin. Tonight, we're going to be learning about the river, the tree, and God himself. And now our Heavenly Father... We ask that as we study here, the very last chapter of the last book of the word of God, that you would indeed bring a blessing to our hearts. Father, I ask that you would raise our level of faith and our love for you, our desire to be with you, our desire to not be entangled by the things of this world, our desire to have a pure heart, single focus, single vision upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us in these last days to live our lives for him fully. Bless now the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, have your own way. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Chapter 22 and verse number one. Follow along as I read. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the lamb. Well, um, the he, as in he showed me, can be traced back to verse number nine of chapter 21. There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me. And so here, this particular angel now is still talking with John and He must have said, turn this way. I want to show you something. And he showed him this pure river of water of life. Now, this is quite a contrast. This uh, river of water. You'll find often in the Bible that when God brings judgments on, on the land or on the earth, oftentimes the water is involved. And that that is very true. Um, You'll see that, say, in uh, Egypt, one of the 10 plagues was turning the water to blood. You remember that in Babylon, uh, what God did was um, the Euphrates River flowed through Babylon and the city of Babylon was walled all around and this and this river flowed through and it, it was impregnable and the people had everything they need. When you have water, then you can water the land and grow crops and people can drink and People need water. They say our bodies are something like 97% water, somewhere, something like that. So that's why we slosh a little bit as we walk down the road. So if you hear a sloshing, then it's okay. You're normal. 
But what God did was he judged Babylon and he uh, had them stop up the water supply. So again, the water was involved. Now this here, this river of, uh, of life, this pure river of life, this is an absolute contrast to the water we have on earth today. Because the water we have on earth today, our oceans, our lakes are muddied. Um, they're filled with trash. They're filled with pollution. That's the world we live in. In the tribulation time, you know, we've studied this. You know that this because we've studied it. God is going to pour out judgments upon the oceans and the lakes and the rivers. And many of them will turn to blood. Other waters are going to turn to wormwood. And so when God sends judgment upon a land, uh, he often uses water. Noah's flood. There's another example of it. Some of us think that some of the tsunamis and the, um, uh, the, the hurricanes and so on, bringing flooding, all these things are God's judgment upon the world today. Wow. Now, uh, I did a little research and I found that um, I wanted to find out where on earth we have the purest water. Do you happen to know where would you think we have the purest water? And it's not here in Surrey. Ah, uh, that's a possibility. Antarctica ice cap, but that's not where they say, but that's what probably I would have chosen. Um, actually it has to do with the country of Chile. That has nothing to no reference there to the waters, Chile waters or anything like that. But, they say, according to researchers, the, the purest water on earth is found in a place called Porto Williams. And it's a town on Navarino Island in the Beagle Channel in Chile's far south, close to the southern pole. So it's, it's down there. You say, how far? Well, from Surrey, it's about 12,600 kilometers. So it's almost like halfway around the world. They say the world is 24,000. No, that's miles, isn't it? All right. It's not halfway, but it's a long way. 12,600 kilometers. I didn't look that up in miles, so I don't know what it is, but it's a far ways away folks. And however, uh, scientists, now you'll find this interesting. Scientists say that uh, absolute, absolute pure water does not exist. Imagine that. Absolute pure water does not exist. I was shocked when I read that. And they say it's because the very chemical nature of water, H2O, instinctively wants to bond itself with other molecules. By the way, I've learned that anything you can smell is water soluble. Because your nose has all kinds of membranes and water in there. And anything that you can smell is water soluble. But just because you can't smell it doesn't mean it's not water soluble. H2O is amazing liquid. Scientists don't seem to be able to reproduce it. Uh, but H2O instinctively bonds itself to other molecules. And this, this is why scientists are not able to overcome, to fully overcome this phenomena, even in hyper sterile laboratories under the most stringent of sterile and hyper conditions, they cannot 
seem to overcome this. And so according to scientists, absolutely pure water does not exist, but it does in heaven because God can do it. And I believe that's what we have here in heaven. And one day God will cause this absolutely pure water to flow out of his throne. Now being so very pure, I think this river must have something to do with God's divine purity. Don't you think if it's flowing out of the throne and how holy is God? Does anyone know? Holy, holy, holy. Yeah. He's a thrice holy God. He is as absolute pure as pure can be far purer than anything in this world. And for the water to flow out of his throne, I think that water has to be tied in somehow with his divine nature, his absolute purity, I, I believe and his holiness. But just what is this river? What is it? Some theologians do not believe that this river is actual literal water, but rather they say it's symbolic And they say this because water is sometimes used in the Bible to represent eternal life. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so there's a, a use of water there symbolically, you see, for, um, Uh, for salvation and eternal life and God himself. John chapter four, verse 10, when Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well, he said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. So there's the woman at the well standing in front of Jesus. And Jesus is talking about living water. And now we know he wasn't talking about an actual pitcher of water, but he was talking about the salvation that he could give her. And so for this reason, some theologians believe that here in Revelation 22, 1, it's not a literal river. Um, Now, I would say that no doubt there is a symbolic idea of salvation to this river. I mean, if you look at verse, uh, go back to chapter 21 and verse 6. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega. Of course, who's that? Anybody know? Jesus, right. The beginning and the end, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So we would readily admit that there's a symbolic kind of a nature there. And also, if you look at chapter 22 and verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. And so no doubt there is a symbolic idea here. However, the apostle John was shown by the angel. One of the angels, the apostle John was shown something. He was, he was not shown nothing. He was shown something. And John identified the something as a river of water. And so I would think that what we have here is not symbolic, but what we have here is an actual 
river of water. There's no reason why this river couldn't be real water. So pure, so infinitely pure at the same time, of course, reflecting the purity of God. Now, after all, we know that in heaven, there's a real temple. That's not symbolic. There's a real altar up there. That's not symbolic. There's the real blood of Jesus. That's not symbolic. And so we have a river of, of water here. Uh, the ri- pure river of water of life. And uh, I don't think it's symbolic. The Lord God put a river in the garden of Eden, didn't he? Now, perhaps this is the heavenly version of that, of that river. And so we have a pure uh, river of water, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the lamb. And so we have one throne. It belongs to the father and the son, God and the lamb. Now, verse 20, verse two, chapter 22, verse two, we have the tree. So first we had the river. Now we have the tree verse two in the midst of the street of it. And on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so after John saw this marvelous river as it wasn't muddy, it was as clear as, as crystal. After he saw that, then he was shown this tree. Now trees need water, don't they? Without water, trees die. So we have this river of life proceeding out of the throne. And we have this tree of life kind of planted on either side and kind of in the middle of it as well. And so maybe the river feeds the tree. Now, what is this tree? Well, let's go back to the book of Genesis. We're going back to the first book now from the last book to the first book. And we're going to take a look in chapter two. Genesis chapter two. Now you folks at home watching on the internet, I know it's easy just to kind of sit there and do nothing, but come on, help me out here. You get your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis. Let's do this together. Uh, You know what the word fellowship means, right? Fellowship is where everyone has a part in it. You take part in the singing. You take part in turning to the Bible passages, right? This is all part of fellowship. Because if you sit there like a bump on a log, sorry for the expression, but if you kind of sit there and do nothing, then you're not part of the fellowship. And so I encourage you at home there, Get your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter two. Now let's take a look here at verse number nine. Notice it says, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here we have the first mention of this tree of life. Now let's go to chapter three. By this point, Satan had tempted Adam and Eve, and they both committed the sin. Too bad. Now we get to verse number 22. Chapter 3, 22. And the Lord God said, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand 
and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Well, verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so here we have the tree of life. What is it? It's a tree that gives eternal life is what it does. Now it's interesting. God never commanded Adam not to eat of the tree of life. He only commanded him not to eat of one tree, right? That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the only tree that God said, do not eat that. But all the other trees he could eat of. He said, well, why didn't he eat of the tree of, of life? We'll ask him maybe one day when we see him. But I expect that uh, he never got to it. He never got around to it. There was, the garden was so big, maybe he hadn't discovered it yet. He'd been very busy naming all of the animals and realizing that there was nothing there for him. And so maybe he got a little discouraged and that's when God put him to sleep and he woke up married. There was Eve by his side and the first uh, wedding there. And so... Um, he was all excited about that and he, he ought to be, but maybe he just didn't get that far. And so whatever, for whatever reason, God said, we can't let him eat of the tree of life because if he had eaten of that, he'd still be alive today. If he had eaten of that, then he would have remained in an unsaved condition for eternity. And so for his own benefit, God had to boot him out of the garden. So God makes no mistakes. So uh, we turn now to uh, the book of Proverbs and uh, we're going to see the uh, tree of life mentioned again. So we go to the middle of the Bible and uh, we find Psalms and then Proverbs. There we are. <clears throat> By the way, you folks at home on the internet, um, Pastor Devian has given me a little, a little monitor here. I'm able to see you at home watching me and uh, come on back out of the kitchen. Come on back to the living room, please. There we go. No, I can't see you, but the Lord can. So let's turn to Proverbs, shall we? Proverbs chapter three, Proverbs chapter three. And let's see, I'll get your help folks. And you at home, you read out again uh, aloud with me. Verse number 18, Proverbs 3, 18. Read it out loud together with me now. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. And happy is everyone that retaineth her. Now, of course, here we have a bit of a, an analogy. And it's a reference here to wisdom. To wisdom. You see, verse 13, happy is the man that findeth wisdom. And then there's a great description given verse 16 length of days is in her right hand in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. Verse 18. She's a tree of life. And this is very true because you know, when the wise man came seeking Jesus, right? They say that wise men still seek Jesus. And so wisdom should lead a person to the Lord. Wisdom should take a person to salvation. So that's important to know. 
Now let's go to chapter 11, shall we? Chapter 11 of Proverbs. And we have verse number uh, 30. Proverbs 11 and verse 30. Again, folks, would you read it out loud with me, please? Proverbs 11:30. Here we go. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. So here's the place in the Bible we have that expression soul winning. He that winneth souls is wise. We just found out that wisdom will lead a person to salvation. He that winneth souls is wise. The business, the job of the church in the world today is soul winning in the city where the church is and throughout the world through missions. That's why it's very important that we get on the bandwagon of missions. Please don't ever despise soul winning. Don't ever, ever speak evil of soul winning. Don't ever speak evil of missions. Soul winning missions is what I'm referring to. Our understanding of missions is soul winning. That's just around the world. Yeah, that's what missions is. Never, ever uh, think evil of missions and missionaries. Never, ever think evil of soul winners and soul winning. Because this is the thing that heaven is made of. If it, if it weren't for soul winning, who would be saved? Right? So very important here. And again, uh, we have that analogy, that understanding that there's eternal life there with the tree of life. Now, let's go to the book of Revelation, but let's go to chapter two. Revelation chapter two, and we have uh, chapter two and chapter three are, are the seven letters to the seven churches. And in the very first letter to the very first church, which is the church of Ephesus, chapter two, verse one, church of Ephesus, the Lord Jesus wrote this very interesting letter. And in verse seven, he has uh, some interesting words. And again, folks, read it out loud now with me, please. Verse seven, all together. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Interesting that the Lord Jesus would say that. Each of these seven letters seems to have... Um, some words of encouragement towards salvation and eternal life. And that is what we seem to have here. Now, if you'd go back to chapter 22, please, of Revelation, the tree of life is going to be positioned on either side of the river of life, which also refers to eternal life. And so the saints, the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem will drink of the river of life and eat of the tree of life. It's interesting that man began in the garden of Eden with the tree of life there. And now he finishes in the new Jerusalem with the tree of life right there. Isn't that interesting? Some theologians have suggested that this tree of life uh, may not be one tree, but actually many, or that the tree will grow into many trees. One commentator uh, that I read, uh, the way he put it was that this tree will become a forest. Now, I'm not sure if that's right or not, because it seems to be very singular here in the Bible. But that's what they say. We'll find out when we get there. All right. But something interesting, it says in verse two, I want you to look at this again. And it says about the tree of life, which bear 12 manner of fruits 
and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so here the tree of life yields 12 uh, fruits and uh, leaves are meant to heal the nations. But the interesting thing is there's no sickness because all sickness and crying and death and all that stuff is all done. It's all behind us at this point. So that raises the question, what does this mean? These leaves for the healing of the nations. And I've gone through a lot of uh, commentators and they all suggest pretty much the same thing that the leaves are to give good health and refreshment and joy to the inhabitants of new Jerusalem. So when it says for the healing of the nations, it, it may not be talking it. Well, it can't be referring to sickness because there will be none. And so the idea then must be understood in the context of the new Jerusalem. And so um, I guess until I see otherwise, I'll figure that they're right that the leaves are to give good health and refreshment and joy and pleasure to the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. Well, we've looked at the river. We've looked at the river of life. We've looked at the tree of life. And now we look at God himself. And that's in the next um, three verses, three, four, and five. So look at verse three. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. Now the presence of the throne means the very majestic center where God himself is found. And that's going to be very, very central to the new Jerusalem. It's going to be right there. The river of life, the tree of life going to be right there. But the point is God is going to be found with his people. This is tremendous news and we shall serve him. There'll be no more curse. In Genesis chapter three, verse 17, God cursed the ground for Adam's sake. That's what it says. But here the curse is removed because no curse can live in the presence of God. It says that his servants, I think that's us folks. His servants will get to serve God directly, directly. We'll have direct access direct course to God will have direct action with God will have direct communication with God. There's no more need of faith because faith is the evidence of things not seen. So God is going to be found in the very midst of his people. We'll go directly to God. We'll serve God directly without any weakness of the flesh. Hallelujah. We'll get to serve God directly without any interference from Satan. It is going to be wonderful. This direct communication we're going to have. We're going to have perfect service for a perfect God. Now in verse four, it says, and they, that's the servants shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. Now up to this point, man is not able to look upon God and live. That's an impossibility. And I think even as we get into the millennial kingdom, I don't think we'll quite be able to do it. But at this point here in the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and God is going to be with his people. His servants will be able to look upon his face. 
up to this point, if man were somehow to look into the face of God, he would die. He would die. Even Moses who prayed and begged to show me yourself. Let me see you. And so what God did was he, he hid him in the cleft of the rock and he passed by. And the Bible says that Moses was able to see the, the hinder parts there of God, but not his face, not his face. So not even Moses could see the face of God. Now, Psalm 105 verse four encourages us to seek his face, but in the context it's done by faith. And the idea is seek God in your prayer closet. Seek God throughout the day. As you go through the day, walk hand in hand with the Lord, slip your hand into his and then walk with the Lord. Seek his face. You know, when Adam sinned, God came. First thing Adam did, he took off and he went and hid himself amongst the trees. He wanted to be away from God. He didn't want to see God's face because of his sin in the tribulation time. There's going to come a point where the wicked and the sinners are going to flee and try and hide themselves from the face of Jesus Christ, almighty God. And here in Psalm 105 verse four, we're invited all the believers, the believers are invited to seek God's face, but it can only be done by faith. But in the new Jerusalem, his servants will actually be able to behold his face. Wow. We'll see him in glory. What a thrill that will be folks. Listen, We, we live a sometimes a pretty sloggy life day by day. You know, we wrestle with the world and the flesh and the devil himself sometimes. And sometimes we think, oh, this is as good as it gets. Oh, I'm telling you, it gets far better, far, far better. One day we will be transformed. We will take on a new dimension like the caterpillar who walks around and eats leaves and so on and finally spins a cocoon. And after a period of time comes out as a butterfly and now is able to fly. No longer does he crawl around and no longer does he have to, you know, eat the, the leaves and things he can fly and he can drink the sweet nectar. He becomes a beautiful butterfly. One day we're going to be clothed with immortality we're going to be changed. That day is coming, folks. It is coming. And maybe it's closer than what we even realize. But I know it's coming. So it says here in verse 20, in verse four, his name shall be in their foreheads. We shall have his wonderful name in our foreheads. What a display of glory that will be. It's not going to be like the shame of having the mark of the beast. Some of the people on earth, many in fact, will take the mark of the beast right on the forehead. But the glory of God's name will be in our foreheads. Hallelujah. And then in verse five, and there shall be no night there and they need no candle, neither light of the sun for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. There's no, no, no night, no candle, no sun. Because God is the light. 
Now, if you look back at chapter 21, verse 23, we've covered this already. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God did lighten it. And the lamb is the light thereof. I think it's mentioned a second time in the next chapter for emphasis. Make us realize the glorious God that we have. He is light. And when he's around, there's no night. There's no darkness. No one needs a candle. I've found that the older I get, the more I appreciate nice, bright light. Things tend to get a little bit you know, hard to read. I find that um, the, uh, the printed page that maybe years ago was easy to read. Now those words have shrunk down. They're hard to read some of those words on the page. And I have to get a, a magnifier to help me. I got some instructions for something in the mail and I looked at the instructions and it showed a picture. I couldn't tell what the picture was. I had to go get a magnifier and look at the picture. And oh, I, I know what it is now. Boy, I sure appreciate uh, nice, good lighting. I surely do. And when we get to heaven, we get into this new Jerusalem. We don't need the sun or the moon, the stars. We don't need any, any other kind of light because it's all phony compared to God. God is the light. He is the true source of light. Now it says in verse 25 that they shall reign forever and ever. We will serve God. We will be serve God by reigning with God. This is how we're going to serve God. Do you remember the parable that Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 19 about a, a, a wealthy Lord who was going to go away. So he called his servants. You remember that? And he gave 10 pounds to one and five pounds to another and one pound to a third guy. Remember that story? Then he comes back and he reckons with the servants. The first servant said, Lord, thy 10 pounds hath made 10 more pounds. The second servant, thy five pounds hath made five more pounds. And we're going to stop there in the parable. But you know, the Lord said, well done to the first one. Here's 10 cities that you can reign over. He said to the second one, well done. Here are five cities you can reign over. Well, here we have in verse five, the servants are going to reign with him forever and ever. And so some of us will be reigning over 10 cities. Some of us will be reigning over five cities, but we're going to reign with him. The Lord Jesus is going to be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And we're going to be right there with him reigning forever and ever. And listen to this. We'll never get tired. That's good news. We'll never get fatigued. We're not going to say, Oh, I need Tylenol. I've worked hard today. Oh, I need something. I, that's not going to happen. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about living forever and your thought is, what am I going to do for all that time? I mean, I can understand living for 70, 80 years here on earth, but by then, I mean, you're finished. You want to pack it in. You want to say goodbye to your loved ones. You want to, you know, go move on to, to heaven. Yeah. Well now think about heaven. 80 years is nothing. 80 years is, is a twinkle of an eye less than that. Oh, 800 years. I'm going to live for 800 years in heaven. What am I going to do all that time? 
You ever thought like that? Some people do, and they won't wonder. Oh, I'm going to get bored all eternity sitting around playing a harp on a cloud. You know, you only know so many songs. You will never get bored. You will never get tired. You will never get discouraged. You will never get exasperated. You will never get to the end of your rope. You will never get, you will never run dry. You will be so equipped. I mean, God has been around for eternity, hasn't he? And he's done just fine. He's enjoying eternity. And now we have the opportunity to enjoy it with him. And we will be with him. So close. His name in our foreheads. We'll be serving him by reigning with him. Now listen. The Bible says that if we suffer for him, we will reign with him. Now, this is important. There are Christians who are kind of do nothings. They don't do much. They don't do anything. They just let everyone else do everything. And they say, I don't have to do anything. I'll just, you know, look after me and myself and I, I don't have to serve. I don't have to give. I don't have to pray. What do I need to even go to church for? There's others that do that. Let someone else carry the water. Let someone else uh, polish up the, the, the doorknobs. Let, let someone else straighten up the, the pews and so on. I don't have to do any of that stuff. And there are Christians like that. And I feel sorry for them. I truly do. Because I mean, what are they going to be doing? They're not going to be raining. That's for sure. You know, sometimes there's a thing called poetic justice and it's possible. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying it's possible that the Christians who are lazy, do nothings in this life are going to end up being our servants. When we're reigning, we need this done. We'll say, okay, this is your job. You go do this. You, you go off and do that. Carry some water. You go off and do this, go off and do that. They won't be reigning. They'll be serving, but it'll be more of a, a menial kind of a, a service. Now I could be wrong, but I don't see anywhere in the Bible where laziness is blessed of God. But I see numerous places where hardworking Christians are blessed of God. They'll have the crowns with stars in them. They'll, they have something to look forward to. And this is what I want to encourage you with tonight. Folks, we're right at the end now. Chapter 22, maybe one more message and we'll be done in the book of Revelation. We'll see, but we're close. I am sure we're close to the coming of the Lord. Now, it may yet still be a long ways off, but a lot of us don't think so. A lot of us think it's, it's pretty close. So there's not much time left to serve him. And so I encourage you with whatever little time we have left, let's serve him. Let's serve him with our prayers. You can accomplish a tremendous amount in prayer. If you know how to pray, if you do it right, you can accomplish, you can move mountains with prayer. That's why we want you to be praying for God's will for that 104 building. Be praying that God will show us and he will show us his will. But also be about your father's business in the area of service, in the area of sacrificial giving, in the area of 
letting your light shine, being a witness for him, handing out gospel tracts. Come on Saturdays and help us to reach the city. We, we're over 10,000 now. 10,000 homes have received gospel literature from our church. Now we still have quite a ways to go and we need all the help we can get. So if indeed these are the last days and we don't know that they are, okay, but we don't know that they aren't either. So let's take advantage of it. There are opportunities for us to serve the Lord and let's prove our worth. Let's glorify him by serving him now so that should the rapture happen right around the corner, the Lord will reward his servants. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Would you pray with me?